week. For those of us that are here and maybe you're new or just joining us, we're in the middle of a series called Restore. It's a study of the book of Ezra. Ezra is written uh, about a period about 2,500 years ago. Um, it was written by Ezra. He also wrote the book of Nehemiah. They used to be together. Uh, really, the Reader's Digest of Ezra is this is the people, God's people were returning out of exile. They were returning to go back home. They were returning to God, and God was going to begin rebuilding. They were going to be rebuild a temple, but the bigger message is God was going to rebuild their lives. God was going to rebuild their community. And the same message that was written 25 years ago is relevant for us today because God wants to restore you. He wants to restore us. He wants to build our lives back. He wants to restore us to who he intended us to be. And we've been talking about some of the steps in the journey of restoration. You know, if you're going to get ready to, to uh, remodel a house, there'd be steps in that restoration process. There have been steps in this journey so far. And I'm just going to give a Reader's Digest recap. If you weren't here, chapter 1 was about returning to God. Is about repenting. Uh, a, a word that kind of sounds negative. It's, it's a good word. When, when we repent, when we change our mind and turn towards God, God begins to rebuild our lives. He begins to do amazing things. Don't ever be afraid of telling God you're sorry. Don't ever be afraid of repenting because he is waiting to welcome you home and restore and rebuild your lives. In the case of uh, chapter 1, the, they had been faithless. The Jews had been faithless for 490 years. And for these 70 years, the previous 70 years, the last 70 years, they had been in exile. They'd been living under foreign government and foreign rule. But now they were, God was returning them to their homeland and they were going to rebuild. Chapter 2 is about reclaiming your identity. For us, it's about reclaiming our identity, who we are in Christ. And when we repent and we begin that restoration process and begin to understand who we are in Christ, then God begins in chapter 3, begins to rebuild. And it's a fun time when God begins to rebuild things. But we know this from chapter 4. When God begins to rebuild our lives, it's not smooth sailing. There is an enemy that hates that our lives are being restored, being rebuilt uh, to follow God. And we have an enemy. You can call him Satan, the devil, whatever, his demons. We have an enemy of the soul who seeks to, whether you believe it or not, he seeks to devour, destroy you, discourage you, and bring you down. So we can expect, chapter 4 told us, expect opposition. And because of the fear of the enemy and the anxiety that it brought, just the words that it brought, the, the work stopped for 16 years. But then in chapter 5, the work began and we began to restart. It was about finishing what was started. More opposition arose, but this time the work didn't stop. We're going to talk about that today because they didn't give in to the threats. They didn't give in to the fear. And they continued to march forward. And so now it leads to, uh, today's a fun day, chapter 6. We're going to get there by the end. Um, at the beginning, you won't see it so much, but at the, at the end, it really becomes a celebration. So I've entitled this message today, Let's Get This Party Started. <laughs> Let's see how God wants to prosper you. Let's get this party started. We're going to go full on Travis Kelsey by the end of the service today. I'll tell you what, it's been seven years coming, baby. I learned one thing since I've been here. You got to fight for your right to party! <laughs> That's it from here. The Chiefs are the AFC champions. And we go back to James Brown and the crew. Don't tell me your pastor doesn't love his people because that's painful for me to... Uh, to show that to you this morning. If you're new here today, I'm a big Denver Donkey fan is what you call us, but 
Broncos fan. We, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna fight for our right to party today because there's a celebration that you're going to see midway through the chapter 6 and the end of chapter 6. But first, we've got to do some work uh, to get there. Uh, we want to see how God's plan is to prosper you. And by the way, I bring up that word and immediately, you know, hair kind of raises up on the back of some people's necks. And so this is not a prosperity gospel. This isn't, this isn't you're going to get the big cars and the big house. That's not what this is. We'll get to that. But before we party, let's go back to chapter 5. The Israelites, to set up chapter 6, the Israelites didn't give in to this fear the second time. And instead, in chapter 5, verse 5 of Ezra, it says this. But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped. They weren't stopped this time. They were stopped in chapter 4. But this time, they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius, and his written reply would be received. We're backing up a little bit because I think there's, although this isn't the main point of the message, I think this is an important part of the message in the day and times in which we live. For the day and times in which we live, they were living under foreign rule and foreign government and a foreign king. Um, We think we have it bad sometimes. I mean, the reality is 50% of the time or or every four years, 50% of the people in this country are happy. 50% of the people, they're ticked off and they're upset and they're discouraged. And then four years comes and that's the other side or whatever. It just goes back and forth. This isn't even a different political party. This isn't a Democrat. This is a Republican. This is like... They were, they were, it would be like in our day and age, not being electing a different president that you may or may disagree or not disagree with, it would be like being taken over by Russia. That's what it was. They were taken by foreign occupiers. They were exiled into a foreign rule, and they came under foreign authority. And then it got even worse. It'd be like, you know, at first it was the Babylonians and the Persians overtook the Babylonians. It'd be like China overtaking Russia and then now we're subject to China. I mean, that's what it would be. It would be like, it's, it's beyond what we can imagine. They were subject to foreign rule and they were there against their will. But notice how they responded. They responded by submitting to King Darius. King Darius was not their king. He was the Persian king. They were under his rule and his authority. But here's how they respond. I think it's something maybe we can learn from today. They were obedient to authority where they could. We're called to submit to earthly authority ourselves unless it causes us to sin and violate a known will of God. We're we're called to submit to rulers and authorities, even those that don't believe like we do or agree with us. There are times where there's civil disobedience when it goes against what uh, God's known law or causes us to sin. In early church, church of Acts, uh, the apostles were under Roman rule. The Jews were under Roman rule. And, and, and the apostle Peter and the other apostles, they were brought uh, before the Roman government and they were told, don't you say the name of Jesus again. Don't you preach in his name. We don't want to hear this again. We're going to dismiss you if you won't do this. And Peter's words were, We must obey God rather than human authority. There is a time where we are called to stand no matter what the consequences. But as Christians, I don't think we should overplay this hand. In the exiled community, there's several books that were written about this season and time in the life of the Jewish exiles. Not just Ezra and Nehemiah that we're in, but the prophets that we talked about last week and you hear about today. Zechariah was written for the season and time, and Haggai was written for the season of time. Jeremiah was written during the exile, and also 
Daniel, and actually the book of Daniel is a great book to help us navigate. How are we to live when we don't always agree, when things, when there's differences? And in the book of Daniel, we see some of the, if you grew up in the church like I did, if you didn't, maybe new, but if you grew up like it, we heard some of the Bible hero, hero stories. And one of those heroes was Daniel. And, and Daniel uh, refused to cave to his core principles. He was going to worship God no matter the cost. He was told not to pray. He continued to pray three times a day, and he was thrown into a lion's den. Now, we know God protected him, and his wonderful, great story. We don't have time to share today, but God protected him. And then we know a few chapters later in Daniel, we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the big chocolate bunny, if you grew up on that, um, you know, VeggieTale thing or whatever. Uh, it was, they, they didn't bow down to the 90-foot idol made of gold in the image of Nebuchadnezzar, they didn't, they didn't, they refused to bow down. And because of that, they were thrown into the fiery furnace to burn to death. Now we know the great story there. There was a fourth that showed up and we believe that is Jesus or the Holy Spirit that showed up in the fire and saved them and protected them. But regardless, they were willing to give up their life for the sake of not denying God. Now those are great stories, but the rest of the time, something that goes unnoticed or unseen or forgotten is the rest of the time they seek to live in peace. They were living under foreign occupation, foreign rule, but they sought to live lives of peace like was described in Jeremiah chapter 29. Also, God said, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I carried you into exile. And there's just a rich thing. I don't have time to preach that today, but there's some things that God allows us to go into for our good so that we'll come out refined and stronger on the other side. I wish we'd talk more about that today. We can't. But pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. If, if Persia prospers, you're going to prosper. And I wonder as we head into chapter 6, we're going to see the response of the king responding to one of his governors who opposed the Jews Tatanai, who, who was the governor that opposed the Jews, was trying to stop them from rebuilding. He appealed to his supervisor. He appealed to the king and said, make these guys stop. This isn't good. And I wonder if King Darius's heart and attitude might have been different if, the, if, if God's children, if the Jews had fought him at every turn, were a thorn in his side. But no, they sought the peace and prosperity of the foreign occupier, the foreign country that they were subject to. They sought for the betterment. And we are to seek the peace and prosperity of those in authority, to pray for those in authority, even when we disagree with them. First Timothy 2, 1 through 3 says, I urge then, first of all, that all petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. The Jews had trusted God and they were respecting authority. And that leads us into chapter 6, King Darius' response to the accusations against the Jews. And here's what King Darius did. King Darius then issued an order, and they searched in the archives, stored in the treasury at Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel, I'm not even going to say that word, in the province of Media, and this was written on it. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. You remember King Cyrus, he was chapter 1. He was the first Persian ruler, but then later um, he had died, and King Darius was now in charge, and so 
he went back and he looked at what King Cyrus, his predecessor, had done. And the king had issued a decree at that time concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices and let its foundations be laid. It is to be 60 cubits high and 60 cubits wide. He said, let the building continue. Don't stop them from rebuilding. But it gets better than that. Not only does he tell his governor who was on his same side, hey, let him keep rebuilding. He goes a step farther. If you bounce down to verse 8, says, Moreover, I hereby decree what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in your construction of the house of God. Their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury by the, by the foreign government from the revenues of trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed must be given to them daily without fail. Whatever they need, give what they need. This is the foreign government saying to the, the, those that are subject to them, saying to his governor, you give them whatever they need. You do whatever. Not only am I saying you build it, but I'm going to have you pay for it. And it made me think of that story that you may have heard about the elderly lady that was a widow that was living by herself and she had no money, no food, and she began to cry out to God, God, I need you to, to supply food for me. I, the cupboards are bare. I don't have anything to eat. And would you? And she prayed it out loud, loud enough for her atheist neighbor who didn't like her next door because she was always praising God. The atheist uh, neighbor next door heard her prayer, heard her cries and said, that's it. I got it. I'm going to get her on this one. He went and bought all these groceries, put them on her front porch, hid in the bushes. She came out, saw all these groceries, and she began again to cry out, Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. You've heard my cry. You've heard my need. You've answered me. And he jumped out of the bushes and he said, Aha, I got you. It wasn't God because there is no God. I bought those groceries. I put them on the porch. It was me. She just went back into praising God. Thank you, God. Thank you that you heard my cry. Thank you that you heard me. Thank you that you supplied my need. He jumped back. He says, what are you, crazy lady? Didn't you hear me? You didn't get this from God. There is no God. I bought all these groceries. I put them on your front porch. She went right back into praising God. Thank you, God. I praise you, God. I thank you for all that you've supplied me with. And I thank you that you made the devil pay for it. <laughs> That's what happened. That's what happened in chapter 6. We're getting fired up for a celebration because God did the unthinkable. He got the foreign Occupier. He got the foreign government, the, the opposition, he got them to pay for it. And, and then going into chapter, uh, I'm, excuse me, verse 11 says, Furthermore, I decree that if anyone defiles this edict, a beam is to be pulled from their house and they're to be impaled on it. I do see some children in here, so we're not going to talk about that, what that means. But I'm just saying, if you, anyone ever says the Bible is boring, they're not reading enough of it. I mean, this is like, X-rated, you know, R-rated. I mean, we're going to pale somebody. And for this crime, their house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. Then, because of the decree King Darius had sent, Tatnai, the governor who was opposing the Jews of Trans-Euphrates, 
and Sheltar Bezani and their associates carried it out with diligence. Not only do you let them rebuild, but you're going to pay for it. And if you don't do what I say, you're going to pay a price for it. It's amazing how God can work. And sometimes we try to get in the way of God and do things for Him and get in His will. I mean, in Jeremiah, I wish I had time for this, but in Jeremiah 29, if you backed up to 28, there was a false prophet that came and said, hey, uh, we're only going to be under exile for two years. We're going to storm the castle. We're going to fight. We're going to get everything back. And God said, no, 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 that's not my plan. And that is a false teacher. That's a false prophet. You're going to be in exile 70 years because I'm going to show you my power. I'm going to show you what I can do. It's not going to be by your might, by your authority. It's going to be by my power and by my authority because you're not going to get the glory. I'm going to get the glory. And it's a great story of waiting on him. And I know whenever times that we talk about how they begin to prosper. And so we're going to go to verse 14. And if you want to follow along in your notes, this is the place where uh, we begin to fill in a few fill in the blanks. Verse 14 says, So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, descendant of Edu. The, the elders and the Jews, they continue to build, they continue to do what God asked them to do, and they continue to prosper. We talked about this last week in chapter 5. They continue to prosper under the good preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. Zechariah, who was preaching, return to me and I'll return to you. Return to me and I'll restore you. Haggai, who was saying, hey, you built your own homes. You've taken care of yourself. My house lays here in rubble. Why don't you get back to building my house and, and then we'll do a great work and we'll do it. They were preaching. They were hearing good messages. And if you're following along your notes, this is where I would say, you will prosper under good preaching. I don't know why God uses preaching. I don't know why we, I sometimes wonder, why does God use the church? Why does he use messages to speak to us? I like to hear messages during the week. Why does he do that? It, back in the book of Acts, when the church ballooned and began to take off, he used the apostles. Uh, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the preaching of the fellowship. They were devoted to the church. They were devoted. God helps us prosper under good teaching under good preaching. And, and um, I'm not speaking of myself. I'm just speaking of God uses preaching to help change lives. This Wednesday, we have an, a second go around of, of, of the Bible conference. And we had a good group this last Wednesday night. Um, someone asked me, hey, I'm going to miss last week. But if I show up, is it, are they build on each other? No, they're standalone messages. And so I just want to invite you again this Wednesday night uh, for the Bible conference, 630. It's not me preaching, but they're, man, they're all-star preachers preaching. And, I, and, and this prosper word, I know it gets a bad rap and gets a bad name sometimes because it gets taken out of context. And I was thinking how I was going to explain it and share it with you. And Craig Hodges, who you heard a couple weeks ago, there's a two-minute clip. He does it way better than I could ever say it in 10 minutes. So just watch what he says about what it means to prosper. It said Isaac did his job. He did his work. He sowed in the land and reaped in the same year, not the normal amount. He re reaped a hundredfold. Why? Because the Lord had blessed him. In fact, it adds this word that makes some people very nervous. Put your seatbelt on. Get ready for it, everybody. The man began to prosper yeah. Yeah. and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. Notice that God does not shy away from the word, even though you, the world doesn't like, y'all one of those prosperity churches? You're a prosperity church? Is that what you are? Name it, claim it, blab it, grab it. Is that what it is? No, 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 no. <laughs> Not how, you're, not how you're thinking about it. No, we're not, actually. 
Because they think of it, oh, you're just praying God bless you so you can drive more cars and have more stuff and wear furs and have gold seats. And all. No, 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 that's not what the word means, not at all, not at all. In fact, you want to know what the word prosper there in the, in the Hebrew language is? It's the word selach, and you got to say it like you have a popcorn kernel in the back of your throat. Selach, like selach. Y'all don't think that's funny? That's hilarious, y'all. Right. Okay, selach, and, if you, and, and it means that you're able to go to a certain point and then God pushes you further. Now, I don't know anybody in this room that would like to have a marriage like, this is as good as husband I can be, but then God made me a better one. This is as good as I can do with my job, but then God added to it. This is as good as I can do with my health, but then God helped. Who doesn't want that? I want, yeah, within that, in that definition, yes, we are. Yes, we are. In fact, in the New Testament, it says, beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. So the, so the right theology isn't what most people think it is. Real prosperity means having more than I need so that I can be a blessing to the people around me, so that I can be an eternal blessing, make, make an eternal difference in people's lives. Let me tell you why. Because if all you're ever praying for is your needs, then what in the world do you have to offer the people around you? God has to give us more so that we can give it away. Can I get a better amen out there? I love that. I, I love that, the, that idea that God is there to push us farther than what we could be ourselves. He is there to help us move forward more than we could on our own. It's like a good coach. Any good coach helps his players reach their full potential. Any good coach helps push his players beyond what they thought they could be to help them, to help them be at their very best. And our God's a better than any good coach. He's a great coach. He wants to push us beyond what we thought imaginable. He wants to push us beyond what, 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 where we are. And if you're following your notes, I would say it this way. God wants to push you beyond who and where you are. God wants to push you beyond who and where you are. In chapter 1 of Ezra, we talked about when we repent, when we, when we return to God, when we come back to Him, then God begins to able to push us because we got to willingly come under His coaching. we got to willingly come under His authority. And, but when we do, God will push you to become the man, the woman, the child of God that He created you to be. And I believe God will push you to beyond what you thought you could be. God will push you and take you farther than you would ever have gone by yourself. And I can say this, I believe, with 100% certainty. Life is just better with God. Your life is going to be better with God. My life is better with God. I'm going to go farther with God. You're going to go farther with God than you ever will on your own. And it's not just a better life. It is the best life. The best life is to follow God. And I don't apologize for that statement. Whether you believe or don't believe, I believe that's the best life is when we follow God. It's what I hope for my daughters. And I was blessed to have one of my daughters here travel 10 hours with three friends, her roommate, for the first service. And they had to take off. What a blessing it is. And to be able to share this with her and my daughter maybe watching in Florida, to be able to say, the reason we want you, the reason Heather and I want you to follow God, the reason we want you to follow Jesus is not for a get-out-of-hell card. I mean, we want, to, we want them to spend eternity with Jesus, but we believe that the best life is God's life for them. The best that they could ever achieve is what God has in store for them. The best life that He has for them is to walk with Jesus. I believe that God wants you to thrive. 
Do you believe that? Do you believe that God wants you to thrive? He wants you to flourish? It's not pie in the sky. It doesn't mean everything goes well. We sing the song, It Is Well With My Soul. We sing that not based on our circumstances. We base it on our standing with Jesus Christ and our relationship we have with him. And I believe that you do want to flourish. I believe that you do want to thrive. I believe that's why you're here. I believe that's why you're watching. I believe that's why we gather as a church. You want to be pushed farther. You want to grow in that relationship with God. You want to know what it is to to, to flourish and thrive. I shared this a few weeks ago. I love this verse. I fell in love with it. Psalm 92, 12 and 13. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. You want to thrive? You want to flourish? Plant your feet in the house of God. Plant your feet in the church. You want to be restored? You want to return return to God and his church? The church is a big deal to God. Christ died for the church. If someone dies for something and he died for you and me as individuals, but he died for the church. If he died for the church, it has to be a big deal to die for something. And God uses the church to restore us. If you're following along, I'll say it this way. God uses the church to help us prosper. God uses the church to help us flourish. I believe this. And and I believe this because I'm so grateful and I'm so thankful for the church. Personally, I'm thankful for the church. The church is what introduced me to Jesus Christ. The church is who helped raise me and teach me my values. The church is who helped introduce me to Heather, my wife. The church is who helped raise our daughters with good youth leaders and sponsors and children's workers. The church has helped us raise our family. I am so grateful. I'm indebted to the church. The church helped introduce me to my calling and helped me discover my purpose, my purpose to glorify him. The church helped me persevere and helped us persevere during difficult times. We've all go through difficult times. Some of you are going through some really difficult times today. Some of them I know about, some of them I don't, but I know that some of you are going through difficult times today. The church helped us, has helped me get through difficult days, get through difficult times. The church has been a family wherever we've been. Being a pastor, we've moved a few times. Being growing up in a pastor's home, we moved even more back in the day when they voted on you every two years. What a blessing that was. That is meant to be funny because it's kind of funny, but it wasn't funny at the time. You know that kind of thing? We laugh at it now. Uh, it, the, the church has been our family. When Heather and I lived in Iowa, it was our family. When we lived in Minnesota, it was our family. When we lived uh, growing up in Colorado and I learned to love the Denver donkeys, that was our family in Colorado. And boy, they, they all, we were all in agreement. It wasn't just church. I mean, we came in, next Sunday would have been all orange. It's heaven. <laughs> the church was our family when we lived in California. The church has been our family. I owe everything I have to the church. The church has helped build my faith, strengthen my resolve, give me hope during dark times, has given me a place to belong and be accepted. I'm not the richest, and I'm not a rich, I don't consider myself a rich man, but I do consider myself one of the richest men in the world. And I owe it to the church. Not financially, 
but because of what God has done for me, what God has done for my family, because of the hope that I have. And I've come to this conclusion. I need the church. I need the church. You need the church. And the church needs you. The church needs one another. This last week, you know, you get stories. Those of you who are teachers, man, you have some heartbreaking stories. You know, you have things. I'm so thankful for our educators and those who are on the front lines, encouraging our young people, encouraging our students. Heather was in a situation this week where she was in a room and there was a bunch of kids and one of her former kids who was maybe now in fifth grade, she just saw him sitting by himself and went over and said, hey, how you doing? And he looked, he was downcast and kind of sad. She didn't know why, but then one of his friends came back from the bathroom and said, uh, Mrs. Peterson, what are you doing here? And she goes, well, I just, just want to be with the cool kids. And this is what broke our heart. One of those boys said, if you want to be with the cool kids, you need to go over to that table. That's where they are. There's nine or ten kids over there. And I just know we live in a broken world. And it's not just in elementary school, middle school, and high school. It's for the rest of our lives. And I pray, oh, how I pray that the church is the opposite of that. I hope our reaction is the opposite of that. My prayer is the church is a place where everyone knows that they belong. Everyone knows that even if they don't believe that they can belong before they believe, that the church doesn't look at anyone by their socioeconomic, by how rich or how poor that they are, by their ethnicity. I'm going to get my words all mixed up. You know what I'm saying. My prayer is the church is the opposite of that. And my prayer for our church, and I believe our church is is becoming, but we can always get better at this. I believe the church exists for two reasons. I believe, number one, exists to glorify God. I believe that's the number one purpose, to praise God, to praise Jesus, to give Him our praise, to give Him our affection, to give Him our love. It's good when we come and we praise together. And when we do that, we leave encouraged. When we praise Him together, there's something that encourages us. But there's another reason. It's to edify one another, edify the church, to encourage others. I believe that each and every Sunday, God help us to be this. Each and every Sunday when we walk through these doors, we should be asking ourselves one or two questions. Do I need to be encouraged? Or do I need to encourage? Sometimes we come in and honestly we're discouraged. Sometimes we don't feel like being here. You dragged yourself to get here because you're discouraged, you're down, you're, you're hurting, you're broken because we go through those seasons. And my prayer on those days is that you get the courage to get out of bed and come and you pray that God will encourage you, give, get you pumped up for another week following him. But the other part of it is, is we come encouraged. My prayer is that we come in if we're saying, do I need to be encouraged or do I need to encourage? My prayer is that eyes are coming in here each week, looking for faces, looking around, looking for that that kid like Heather Saul sitting by himself, looking, it's so easy to get in our routines and go to those people that we know and we like and it's easy and we know they're gonna respond to us well or we don't really know who that person is, but that's why it's so important because we never know what people are going through. And people are coming into this church or any church, they're coming in for two reasons. They wanna be encouraged or or they want to encourage or they should want to encourage. I believe that's the questions we need to be asking ourselves. God. I need this today because it's been a rough week. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm hurting. I'm, 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 I'm feeling broken inside. And I need a touch from you today. And I believe there's other moments we walk in here, life is good, things are going well, 
And we need to be looking for those folks that are on the other side. And we need to say this question, who can I encourage today? Imagine if we all came each and every week with the mindset and the thought, who can I encourage? You never know what your words have encouraged, what what it might mean to someone else. You never know how many times you've encouraged me when I was discouraged. I'm not encouraged every time I come to church. I'm like that pastor. I said, I don't want to go, go to church today. And you've heard the joke or whatever. And the wife is like, you got to go to church. And I already gave you the punchline. But the punchline is, you got to go. You're the pastor. Sometimes we don't feel like it. But I can't tell you how many times the people of God have encouraged me. And I've left with a bounce in my step. My prayer for us is that we will dive into the celebration of this. And I I told you a celebration was coming, so I don't want to finish this without sharing the last part. That letter went out, the response came, the the people began to rebuild. They were flourishing and thriving under the preaching of Zechariah and Haggai. But there's two places it talked about celebration. Verse 16, then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of the God with joy. They celebrated. They built the temple. The temple was complete. God doesn't need a temple. He can't fit in temple. Temple represents the presence of God. And when we, when we come to Jesus, we come back to him and we build a temple for him. We build up an altar in our life for him. Then the joy begins to permeate our lives. And then it, it wasn't just one time, but I'm going to fast forward to verse 22. It went on for longer, for seven days at the Passover. For, even, for, for seven days, they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread. Because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of king of the king of Assyria, which was Darius. So he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. This was amazing. God had changed this king's heart. He had given the people favor. And I think maybe some of that goes back to they were responding in favor towards the king. In every way that they could, they, they, they prayed for the prosperity. They prayed for that they would flourish because if the king flourished, they would flourish. And I think the king maybe responded in kind in, in large part because the people were good people. We should be the best employees. We should be the best workers. We should be the best classmates. We should be the best teammates because we're praying for the prosperity of those around us. We want their lives to flourish. We want their lives to be great. And when we do, we celebrate. I'm thankful to today in that last verse, I'm reminded God changes hearts. God changes things. God changes lives. He changes attitudes. He fills us with joy. And your best life, my best life, our best life is to follow Jesus. It is our best life. Would you pray with me today? Your head bows and your eyes closed this morning. I just want to give an opportunity view this morning. First of all, I just, maybe some of you are going through some things and you come in here discouraged or you came in here discouraged. I don't have to know what it is. God knows what it is. But you just, by an act of faith, you're saying, God, there's something you've spoken to me about today. And I just want to recognize that you see me and I see you. Whatever that is, God just spoken to you today. I'm not going to call you out. You just want to raise your hand so I can just pray for you. I just want to pray for you today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. There's a lot of us. 
We all have stuff. Father, I thank you for the, the, the hands that have been raised of my friends, not signifying to me, but raising their hand to you saying, God, I need you. I need your help. Lord, I need you to rebuild something. I need you to touch something. I need you to change something in my life or in my family's life or in our marriage. I need you to do something. I need you, I need you to do what I can't do. But God, you are the God who changes things. And I pray that we would stand by faith today. My friends would stand by faith that, God, you're working, even though they may not see you working. Lord, I pray you give them faith as they walk out of here. With your heads bowed and your eyes still closed today, the best thing you can realize is that your life is going to be at its best when you give your life to Jesus Christ and you give your lives to God. And each and every week we give this opportunity. Maybe you haven't done that yet or maybe you're new here today. Maybe you've been here a long time and you haven't done that. But today, you want to come back to God or you want to give your life to Jesus. I'm just going to count to three. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. I won't call you out. I won't embarrass you. I'm just going to pray for you. That's you. Count to three. One, two, three. Raise them high. Raise them where I can see them. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You can put them down. Thank you. It's not important that I see it. What's important is God sees you. And that's a statement of faith. You're saying, God, I need you. I want you. I want, to, I want to come home to you. And so each and every week, we just pray a, a statement of faith. It's a confirmation of our faith, but it's also so you don't have to pray this prayer alone. But if that's your desire and you raise your hand today, we're all going to pray this prayer to, together. So if you'll cl- open your eyes this morning, I'm going to pray a prayer of faith this morning. And, that's, and what's important is not the words, but that we believe it in our heart. So we just repeat after me, Lord, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that He gave His life to forgive my sins and was raised from the grave to give me life. I receive Your grace by faith. Come into my life. I will follow You.